This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into UBS's Global Research Pod Hub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Bhanu Baveja. I'm Chief Strategist at UBS Investment Bank. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about our bank's key economics and asset calls for the year ahead. I'm joined by Arun Captain, Chief Economist at UBS. Arun, how are you doing? Hey, Arun, how are you? Very good. So last year was defined by inflation surprises. And in the markets, it was defined by a big pickup in rates, particularly real rates. What are the highlights of 2023 in the calls that you're making, Arun? Yeah, so basically we think a lot of that goes into reverse. So uh, just starting with, with you know, what, what is the baseline forecast, you know, we think this year we could see historically weak growth. So what, what do I mean by that? Um, we've got roughly a 2% global growth forecast. That would be the weakest since 1993, if you exclude the pandemic and the global financial crisis. And, and where that's coming from is really two things. So one is that inflation shock that we had um, over the last year, year and a half, that's really been eating away at people's real disposable income. And so you start to see that in consumption sort of trending uh, trending lower. And then of course, the response to that inflation was for the central banks to, to hike quite aggressively. And, and the lagged impact of that, that tightening is still mostly ahead of us. So we're gonna start to see that increasingly show up in the data. And so those two things combined um, are, are gonna push growth uh, lower. Now, you know, it's very much sort of the mile wide inch deep variety. We don't have a, a major financial crisis anywhere, but we've got over a third of all the countries in our coverage contracting by two or more quarters uh, this year. And so that's really something that looks like um, something you might call a global recession. Now, the important part of that forecast is that the U.S. is among those that we expect to contract. So the you know big feature of our forecast is that we think the U.S. goes into recession from roughly the the second quarter onward. So initially sort of starting slowly, uh, start to generate some negative job um, uh, loss, and then actually building in the second half of the year where it becomes a, a deeper recession. And so that's critical to uh, sort of thinking what's gonna happen in the outlook because um, you know currently the, the Fed has this high for longer narrative where they basically say that they're not gonna repeat the mistakes of the past, they're not gonna prematurely ease. Uh, but they're a dual cent, cent, a dual mandate central bank. And so what that means is um, that uh, the moment they start to see job loss, everything effectively changes and they need to start reversing the excess tightening. And so that starts to happen, we think, in the second half of the year. Um, um, so already in the second half of the year, we get to something that the market is not pricing until the end of next year. So we think they'll um, get down to uh, so peak at sort of five percent Fed funds, get down to about three and a quarter by the end of the year, and then they keep cutting early next year, almost fully reversing the hiking cycle that we've seen in uh, up up to now. Okay, so we'll talk about the Fed in a second, but in some your key calls are pretty much close to global recession through 2023. This is the third weakest um, growth print across the last 30 years, with the exception of 2009 and 2020. So that's quite important. The US is also in recession, but all of these are income statement recessions, really not balance sheet recessions. They're modest recessions. Now, we are calling for this weak growth, Haran, but the data has actually held up okay in the last couple of months since you released the outlook in many places, Europe, um, China, and even in some parts of the US, the consumer in particular. Are there any surprises so far this year for you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I would dispute uh, that to some extent. So I, I think the the U.S. data has continued to get worse, and I think is slowly converging on our on our forecast. I think the the surprise uh, in China is more, I think, on the timing of reopening so far rather than the what we're seeing in the data as a result of that reopening. So uh, we thought the reopening would happen sort of later in the first quarter. They've already gone ahead and and done it. Uh, what's interesting about that reopening is that if you look at the some of the high frequency indicators, they're almost as negative uh, in the opening up process as they were last spring when they were basically in, in lockdown in the, in a number of cities. But so that's happened a bit earlier than expected. I think now we need to wait and see um, how quickly um, the 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 waves subside and uh, and particularly the property market can start to recover. So we think that's still a few months away, but um, that's definitely positive that that's happened a bit earlier. And so we've, we've tweaked uh, the China forecast a little bit because of that. Um, the other surprise, and that goes more in the direction of your, your question as, as really uh, something we have been surprised about, that is the resilience in the European data. So we had a recession in, um, in Europe in our forecast for this winter. It was a pretty mild one, right? So we, just the uncertainty effects and the, um, um, uh, and the um, uh, just the price effects of high inflation we thought would be enough to sort of create some negative growth. And the tracking on the hard data in particular just looks much more benign um, uh, than, than we thought. And so it actually looks, based on the hard data, that you know we might even avoid a recession in Europe. But it's I think we have to wait and see that you know if you look at our recession probability models, then the probability in the hard data model has fallen from something like 90 to 30%, but the soft data models are still running close to 90. So um, so I think we have to wait and see. Um, so those, I think, for me, are, are sort of the two big uh, surprises. And then the other one, which I, 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 I um, probably should have commented on earlier, is that um, it's sort of a, not a surprise, but it's it's something that is notable, is that we are rapidly moving, I think, into a much more disinflationary environment. So the, um, you know, the bottlenecks um, in supply chains are evaporating. The, you know, the run rate of U.S. inflation, if if you strip out the rents, is basically at zero already. Um, and so, and and then you look at what's happened on gas pr gas prices in Europe, which have basically completely collapsed because of a warm winter. I mean, those are um, obviously some of the um, um, some of the positives that, that partly help drive that. I think that European resilience. You know, the the sort of gap between hard data and soft data that you're talking about in Europe is also something we witness in in markets where there's this chasm between what macro indicators are saying and what companies are saying. Right. So companies are super positive and forward looking data, whether it's PMI, manufacturing or services or CapEx orders are extremely negative. And, you know, to some degree, I think the way we resolve this is that many companies are addressing orders that they've had from prior time. So they're backfilling previous orders, the backlogs are being met. And that is the reason why perhaps hard data has been very strong. Industrial production has been very strong and and some parts of um, uh, the consumer have also been very strong. So that's the pent up demand, but that is not to say that it will continue. So the forward looking indicators, that's the soft data is telling us that CapEx intentions are weakening and confidence in revenues holding up is weakening. So it's very likely the case that we stay strong for Q1 uh, this year, but then the data flatters to deceive and goes into that global recession point that you were making. The prime example of that is, is auto production, right? Yes. So we, we had, um, chip shortages all through the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, the, the auto team was 
constantly talking about um, all, all these units not being able to be produced. And then as the chips start to arrive, you see the production surge back and then the pent up the, the consumption demand for those those cars everyone had been waiting for suddenly sort of um, really showing up in the data. Um, now, the auto team, I think, thinks that's like a six-month process. And so you, you know, it takes six months to sort of clear the backlog. But then you basically go into oversupply very, very quickly. And then, indeed, you get the, the weaker production numbers down the road. I mean, you're already seeing consumption for autos declining, right? I mean, November and December data showed pretty weak consumption for trucks and cars, and they're analyzing something like 13 million as opposed to 16 million. So end demand is already weakening, even as production and orders are strong. So yeah, so the forward-looking uh, indicators uh, are probably important. So what both of us, I think, are saying is that the micro converges onto the macro and this hard data converges onto the soft data in about a quarter, quarter or so. So let's talk a little bit about the Fed because uh, you make quite an important call. This is the risk creator of the world. And you know, you're saying the Fed is going to be fully reversing its entire hiking cycle by early 2024. The market's pricing in something really different. So could you just elaborate what's behind your call on the Fed? Yeah, it's, it's contingent on two things happening. So, so number one, we do need to see inflation converge back towards the target. So we're forecasting that. The Fed is clearly not. And Consensus is clearly not. So if, if you look at this through the lens of um, core PCE, so this is basically you know the headline that um, the, the main inflation index that the Fed tracks, and then looking at the the underlying sort of trend in that index, um, we think that gets back to close to two percent by the end of uh, this year. The, the Fed actually believes it's uh, going to end at about three and a half percent, so much higher than what we're forecasting. Um, and so, so that's the first thing that needs to happen, right? We need to be right on that. And then the second thing, which is actually, I think, even more important, is that uh, the labor market effectively needs to crack. And, and so the reason is that the Fed is a dual mandate central bank. So right now they have a, you know, what we call a high for longer narrative. So they basically say things like, you know, we're not going to prematurely ease. We, we don't want to make the mistakes of the past, obviously, because they're scarred by inflation having run away from them. Um, and that's a very easy narrative to have when, when you only have one problem, i.e. inflation. Uh, but they're a dual mandate central bank. So the moment they start to see job losses uh, and the mandate becomes uh, in conflict, then everything gets a lot more com complicated. And, and just to illustrate that, if, if you look at the last 40 years, all the cutting cycles that the Fed has uh, embarked on, there's only one instance where uh, they had more than one month of negative payrolls before they started cutting. And that one instance was four months. So, so basically, the moment you see job losses, everything changes. And so our call really depends on, on seeing that job loss. Now, we think we get that because we have that recession in the forecast and we think 1.7 million jobs uh, will be lost. But, but we really need to be right on both of those to get to the Fed call. Right, so both inflation and negative payrolls or a weak labor market are necessary neither one in of themselves is sufficient both need to happen and then the fed changes very very quickly um but what about let's just focus on inflation for a second you're saying this is a year of disinflation which i think um, many people would agree with but it's the question of where you eventually land is it not the case that you can make an argument in favor of structural inflation so inflation not being at 1.5 to 2% but potentially being at 2.5 to 3.5% because of a plethora of reasons demographics decarbonization deglobalization so can inflation not be structurally higher aren't 
So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because the cyclical sort of arguments for being skeptical about inflation coming down, that, that last bit, you know, where it gets stuck, sort of get commingled with the structural arguments. And, and so on the structural arguments, you know, I think there's a grain of truth in, in a lot of this, but it's just not quantitatively that important. So, so if you take something like, you know, the decarbonization that we're going to go through in the next decades, uh, there was a nice study by the IMF that basically um, you know, quantified it and said, look, maybe it's worth about 20 basis points by the year 2030, but in the next five years, maybe 10 basis points. So that's really very, very small relative to the ability of the central bank to offset that with, with tighter policy. Um, and then the, um, you know, things like uh, deglobalization, um, you know, to use, you know, so, so first of all, globalization has gone up in this pandemic, right? So if you think about the Chinese, you know, trade penetration rates have actually gone up. Now that may fall back and stall. And, and so it's certainly possible that trade to GDP uh, goes back to something that looks uh, a lot more flat. Um, but that actually doesn't automatically mean that we're in a less competitive environment. So online penetration rates are just continuing, continuing to go up very, very rapidly. Um, and so, you know, the normal states, I think that we're in, even if trade does not increase, is that we're just in a really competitive environment, environment where um, there's just not a lot of pricing power. And I think we're starting to already see that in the, in the data. Look how quickly, you know, discounting for a lot of goods is coming back as shortages have dissipated, right? So it's just, I think, so I, I don't really buy the argument. And then on some other ones like aging or, you know, demographics, um, it's not even obvious that the argument has the right sign, right? So there's just empirically very little basis to believe that as you age or as, as economies age, that uh, then suddenly there's more inflation and you just need to look at places like Japan, I think for some of the counter evidence. Um, so, so some of it, you know, maybe worth something, but not relative, I think, to the incredible speed of this inflation we're going to see because of cyclical factors and not relative to the ability of the central banks to sort of offset that. In 10 seconds, Aaron, what do you worry most about getting wrong? Um, you know, commodity prices being wrong on those because everyone's bad at forecasting those, that, that can actually change the landing zone for inflation, that, that creates complications for central banks. So that's a known unknown. I worry about those. I worry about predatory pricing behavior. So basically the, the non-tradable part of the economy, the service sector, trying to really um, still uh, you know, push that, that elevated cost base on into prices just to, as long as they possibly can. So you know, we could easily be wrong on the timing of things happening by, by a few months. Um, I worry about the mortgage rate shock. I mean, the, the, all this tightening has created the largest mortgage rate shock in 50 years globally. So we could, in floating rate mortgage markets, see consumer distress that we haven't fully internalized into the forecast. So those are all negatives. I mean, on the positive side, you know, what I, obviously I'm hoping for is that we get some de-escalation in the Russia-Ukraine war, and that then could create a very different energy environment. So those are some of the things that we've been uh, pondering. Yeah, let me turn to you, um, Banu, because we should talk markets. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting things is that um, despite all the Fed hawkishness that we still see in the weekly Fed speak, we yields are already falling pretty pretty sharply. And so, I guess the question is, how far can they go? And and if you have to pick a market uh, to be long fixed income in, um, what market would it be? Yeah, there are several markets where I think bonds are super attractive. It's not surprising that the Fed is is hawkish and I think they will be for a while. So I don't think this is time yet to receive the very front end of the curve. So the market's already pricing in uh, the Fed cutting rates by the end of this year already. But the long end 
which is already well below the front end. So in fixed income jargon, the curve is inverted and quite steeply inverted. So it is at sort of negative 70 basis points. It can get more inverted in the coming few weeks and months. Last year was defined by real yields going up, not just in fixed income, but every asset class, whether it's credit or it's equities or it's FX, the defining um, property of all assets last year was the rise in US real yields, the risk-free rate of the world. This year, we think half of the backup in yields last year will be given back. So we think 10-year US Treasury yields, which are currently trading at 3.5% in nominal terms, go to about 2.7% by the end of this year. The bulk of that decline is likely to come in real terms. The front end also begins to move when we get close to the Fed pivot. So the last hike of the Fed, we think, is likely to be March. And around that time, so late Q1, early Q2, the two-year also begins to move. But as of now, it's the 10-year we're most focused on. So US is one market we're very bold up on. But there are other markets that, in fact, we're even more bold up on, where Korea uh, is, is one place where we really like bonds. Australia is another place where we really like bonds. So China may move in the opposite direction in the near term as the economy opens opens up and fixed income sells off a little bit, but really its core is quite cold from a medium term perspective and Korea and Australia really uh, are, are satellites around China in terms of inflation. So in the medium term, if you're getting a very high correlation between US bonds and Korean bonds and Australian bonds, I think that's a mistake and that should be faded. That correlation between US and Korea should be faded because it should trade along the China axis. And so we think Asia Pacific, particularly Korea and Australia, are some of the markets that we are most bullish on. So this should be a year for bonds. Uh, the slight trouble is that the market's already smelling this and, and you know, about 40% of the move that we thought is going to occur over a two-year period or, or an 18-month period has already come through. So this move may be quicker than we had initially anticipated, but certainly the direction of travel is for yields to go lower. And so it's a bit of a reversal, I guess, of last year, right? So last year we had weaker bonds hurting equities, it was both and down. It was basically a double whammy for a lot of our clients. Um, now, if they are rallying, if bonds are rallying in 2023, does that then mean this is also a buy signal for equities? No, it doesn't. And that's, you're right, it's slightly counterintuitive for some of the clients because they have said, look, your big problem was bonds. And so that's going away. Why don't you buy? We don't buy because although government bonds are going to be rallying, corporate bonds is not, it's not clear at all that they'll be rallying. In fact, there's a very decent chance that high yield spreads widen out much more than the decline in zero coupon yields, uh, which in simple English means that the risk premium will go up as we go into a recession, even if the risk-free rate will go down. And the degree to which the risk premium will go up, i.e. credit spreads will widen, will overwhelm the decline in the risk-free rate or in government bond yields. And therefore, what matters for equities is the discount rate. And the discount rate is very closely related to the corporate bond yield. And the corporate bond yield, especially in the high yield space, is likely to be rising. At this minute, corporate credit spreads, risk premium, in other words, is extremely tight. So the markets, particularly the credit markets, are not pricing in a recession. There's the narrative is all about recession. The market pricing is almost anything but. And so as recession does become a reality, as we move in that direction, risk premium rise will be larger than the decline in government bond yields. And as a result of that, the discount rate goes up, the NPV goes down, the price of the market goes down. That's the valuations. But there's also the other aspect that 
we haven't yet seen a serious downdraft of earnings, and we do think that that is coming. So we are well below market's consensus on earnings expectations. We are at $198 per share for the S&P. The consensus is somewhere between 225 and 230. So we're about 15% below the consensus on earnings. We think this is a year where operating leverage will be in reverse. So we will see a decline in top line and we'll see a very large decline in earnings as margins also come off. So higher discount rate despite low government bond yields a revision downwards in earnings, that leads us to be reasonably cautious on equities. Not through the year, we think that there will be a bottom in equities well before the bottom in earnings, but it'll coincide, of course, with the bottom in multiples, which we think happens at some point, late Q2, early Q3. That's the time we think equity markets are also likely to bottom out. So as we are recording this, the S&P is close to 4,000. We think there's greater downside risk over the next six months than there is upside. Now, we're, of course, calling for a pretty modest recession. Does that matter? Like, what, what does history tell us about the returns through the type of recession that we're forecasting? Yeah, so we've looked at this in some detail. And, you know, there have been 17 recessions in the U.S., for instance, over the last 100 years. Ten of them have been shallow, where the GDP decline has been less than 3%. Seven of them have been deep. I'll stick with the shallow recessions experience because that's what we are expecting this time as well. In those 10 shallow recessions, the time-weighted average drawdown has been only 11%. The market actually started recovering four months into the recession. The bulk of the decline came before the recession began. Eight months before the recession began, the market went down. And four months after the recession began, the market began to rally already. What's different this time is that your valuation starting points are very different compared to an average of 14 times on Cape Today, CAPE is sitting at 28 times, so bull, the average, the time-weighted average uh, valuation multiple just ahead of a shallow recession. And also margin levels are much higher. So when people say, why should I get out of bed for a shallow recession? What we would point out is that you need to be a little bit more careful because margins are not the median shallow recession level. Valuations are not the median shallow recession level. So you could see, even if the GDP recession is a very modest one, and that's exactly what you're calling for, you could see a larger drop in earnings than you would otherwise have thought. So that's your margins point, And you could see a larger drop in the market than you would have otherwise thought because valuation multiples also need to normalize as a risk premium increase credit spreads widen out. And I would just point out 2001, 2000, 2001 was also a shallow recession and we saw a very large drop in the market. It took seven years for the S&P to go back to its high water mark. Okay, let's talk about the dollar. So, you know, if we're in a weak global growth environment, then historically, um, dollar tends to be quite strong. You know, investors are, are risk averse, but we also have these Fed cuts. So, so where does the net effect of those two take you? Yeah, before I answer that, let me say that, you know, we've done so many meetings in the last, about 150 meetings in the last two months. And I've got to say that this weak dollar is actually almost a completely consensual call, right? So everybody completely believes that. The extent to which people are already invested in it are is, is maybe a different question. I think people definitely have it in their heads. I don't know if they fully have it in their books. We think it, it'll be a little nuanced. So I would say that we do expect the dollar to weaken against G10 currencies for sure, right? So the yen being the prime beneficiary, but also the European axis, especially as, as you alluded to earlier, you're seeing 
upside risks in the European economy for the near term. China reopening has surprised, not in terms of its magnitude, but in terms of its timing. But that's also coming at a time when Eurozone, the worst fears are not being realized. And so that's helping the European axis. So, so yen, euro, sterling, noki, stocky, Aussie, all of these should do well against the dollar. Emerging markets, which historically have taken the brunt of the weakness as the dollar has strengthened in a global recession, we are a little more cautious on again this time. So for instance, we don't want to chase dollar renminbi uh, lower, i.e. we don't want to chase the renminbi strong. And similarly, across many other parts of emerging markets, India, South Africa, Indonesia, we are cautious and we don't want to chase the dollar weaker. Now, there are some parts the Thai baht is going to benefit from a China reopening. Singapore dollar is going to benefit from a China reopening. If I have to pick extremes, I'd say this will be a year where the yen crosses perform quite well. So yen does much better than Korean won, for instance, or much better than the Indian rupee, for instance. So these are the either ends of that spectrum. Okay, Arun, why don't we leave it there? Uh, I just want to thank everyone for visiting UBS's research pod hub. This was an overview of the key economics and asset market calls for 2023 from UBS Investment Bank with me, Bhana Baveja, Chief Strategist, and Arun Captain, Chief Economist. Tune in again for more investment insights. Thanks again and catch you soon. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content and has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2023. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS. All rights reserved.